0: God in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for the singing uh, to you and about you and for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the blessing of being in your house. Lord, this is your house. It is not ours. It does not belong to us. It belongs to you. And Lord, as we are in your house, we pray that you may be glorified in your house. We pray, Lord, that you may be pleased with everything that we say and everything that we pray and everything that is preached and everything that is sung this morning in your house. Father, we ask you right now to look upon us as I pray. I pray, Lord, and ask that your grace be with me as I pray for our church and for others this morning. Lord, your word calls us to be servants of you and servants of one another. Lord, your word has called us to be faithful servants. Lord, we thank you that you have designed a plan of redemption that rescues the unworthy and the guilty from their, their plight of being in sin, that they are not without hope. And Lord, you place them into your kingdom if they come to you and believe. Lord, your kingdom only exists. Not only as a heavenly realm, but your kingdom, Lord, has a vital presence now on this earth through your saints and through your church. Lord, we rejoice that you design to build your kingdom through your body, through the church, which we here at the Living Church are a part of. We are a part of your kingdom. Every member has an important part to play. Every member of your church, every member of the local church, every local church has a role to play. And Lord, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul. We recognize the unique gifts and abilities that you have given to advance your kingdom as is laid out in places like 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. And Lord, we are greatly encouraged to realize that the scriptures testify that the Spirit of God gifts all of us, Lord, to serve in your kingdom and that you help us to be faithful servants. Lord, you surrounded Paul with people that we don't know, but he named them as faithful people who helped him in his ministry. And Lord, you surrounded all of us with faithful ministers, faithful servants to assist us in doing ministry here on this earth. Lord, we thank you for the examples in the body of Christ working together. Lord, we're reminded that you not only save sinners, but you bring them together into one body under the power of one spirit to accomplish your glorious purposes. And Lord, through that, your grace is abundant. It is shown in every way. And Lord, we bless you for the gospel and all that it brings. Lord, the gospel brings salvation. It brings liberation from sin, from the true oppression, which is sin. Lord, it brings healing. It brings wholeness. And the gospel brings hope. Lord, thank you that you equip us and blend us together in this wonderful entity called the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that your gospel message has shone on our hearts, which brought us salvation, which liberated us from the bondage of sin, which which brought us the spiritual healing that we need, which gave us the wholeness as your people who were once separated from you. Lord, we do confess that there are times when we're not useful as we should be. And Lord, sometimes we could be even a hindrance to your work. Sometimes, Father, we grieve the Holy Spirit. We seek the pleasures of the world. We seek to please man rather than pleasing you. Lord, sometimes we live without heed to our duties. We trifle with things that are evil. We don't take them seriously. Lord, we confess also that at times we are unloving, we are uncaring, we are proud, we are selfish, we are boastful. We're impatient with others. We're too earthly minded. Sometimes we're too apathetic about the things that really matter. Lord, how desperately we need to come before you to be washed and forgiven of all such things and all such attitudes. Lord, may we put to death our sins at their first appearance and never let them linger. Lord, our heartfelt desire is to manifest Christ in his great glory we are the body of which he is the head may we honor Christ accordingly in everything we do and everything we teach and in how we live Lord in all the ways we have offended you we humbly ask you to forgive us how grateful we are that you are willing to forgive repentant sinners and restore us for useful service Lord, our greatest desire is to be suitable instruments in your hands. May we be faithful in your service. Enlarge our capacity for gospel work. And Lord, as we close this prayer, we confess that you are everything we need. May we desire nothing more. You are our stronghold and our deliverer. You are our strength and our hope. You are our guide and our keeper. You are the one true God and the rock of our salvation. Lord, all your grace abounds to us. We always have full sufficiency in everything. Lord, there's nothing that we lack because of your grace. Lord, we have abundance for every good deed. May we not squander the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. Cleanse us, Lord, so that we may clearly reflect the glory of Christ. Help us, Lord, now to give more perfect attention to your word. As the writer in Hebrews warned, may we take heed to what we hear. Lord, as we hear the preaching of the word this morning, Remove all distractions from us. May the cares of this world not choke the word. And the deceitfulness of riches. Lord, cause our hearts to be ground ready to receive your gospel truth. To hear it and to apply it to our lives. And Lord, we bring all these petitions in your blessed name. May they be heard and answered as they are consistent with your will. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Let us turn to Matthew the 21st chapter. We're continuing with our sermon series in the parables of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And this morning we're going to look at the parable of the two sons parable of the two sons hope y'all had a chance to read it I think when I sent out the sermon details I suggested reading the whole 21st chapter of Matthew because that gives a good context to this passage that we're going to look at this morning and I may allude to it in my sermon I think but the 21st chapter begins with the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem this was Palm Sunday the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday in in narrative in Matthew's Gospel so this parable takes place on Palm Sunday uh, the the week leading to it as those are called Holy Week, Week leading up to Christ's crucifixion so you can just keep that context in mind and Uh, The fact that things are beginning to intensify between Christ and the religious leaders whom he was speaking this parable to. So beginning of chapter 21 talks about the triumphal entry. And then on the heels of that, Hosanna in the highest. The next thing that Christ does is he goes to the temple. And what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He gets a whip and and. overturns the tables of the money changers and and grabs his whip and says, uh, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And then the blind and the lame came, and the chief priests and the scribes, they came. Jesus healed. It says children were crying out in the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. And Christ praised them. And then after that. Christ cursed the fig tree. And then after that. We see a question of. Jesus' authority. By the chief priests. And the elders. Remember these were the religious leaders. Of Christ's day. The Jewish leaders of the day. So you see the intensity. Is just building. This confrontation, this opposition to Christ, and, and Christ establishing his authority, and the opposition coming up against him. So we we see in this narrative things intensifying, and then we get to the parable. Begin at verse 28. It says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, Go work today in my vineyard. He said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, "Assuredly, I say to you, That tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Ouch. And we'll talk about the tax collectors and harlots. okay as I said earlier just observations here this parable takes place during Holy Week which began on Palm Sunday uh, at the beginning of the first chapter and Holy Week ended ended with the crucifixion which we see in in Matthew 27 and 35 the man in this parable remember all parables they have characters so the man in this parable is God the Father and it says a man had two sons. So the man in this parable is God the father. The two sons are those who respond to the message of John. Okay, that's the first son. And then the religious leaders, the high priests and elders, who do not, respectively. So the first son represents those who responded to John's message. And the second son are the high priests, and elders who don't. The vineyard being engaged with God's work in the kingdom. So that's what the vineyard represents, the, the the work in God's kingdom. Now, the context of this parable, as I said, is the intense conflict between Christ and the religious leaders. In chapters 21 through 23, it intensifies, intensifies, and it heightens more and more and more to chapter 23, where he basically excoriates the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs, saying that their disciples become, their converts become worse uh, when they convert to their their teaching. He just man announced all these woes against the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23. So these three chapters right here, the intensity of the conflict between Christ and the high priests and elders It gets higher and stronger and thicker. The religious leaders responded wrongly to John the Baptist's message concerning Christ. They proved to be hypocrites, not living up to their talk. And that's what Christ did. He exposed their hypocrisy. Now, this parable that we're doing this week begins a trilogy of parables in Matthew that announced judgment on the Jewish religious leaders so this is the first this, this week next week and the week after next we're going to be teaching through three parables that basically announce judgment on the religious leaders that's who they're going to be geared toward the religious leaders so he's going to basically announce judgment on them in parables and why is that judgment happening because they have rejected Messiah they rejected the Messiah while the Gentiles were receptive to him and his message remember the scripture that says he came to his own and his own received him not his own included his his Jewish brethren the, the chief priests and elders the ones who should have known that he was the Christ so those the, the, the main point is those who should have didn't and those who should not have did that's how you can boil that down now the, the, the structure to this parable this parable is broken up into two things uh, verses 28 through the first part of verse 31 is the parable itself and then the second part of verse 31 and verse 32 is the interpretation of the parable. Where he says, Jesus said to them, 'Surely, assuredly, that is the interpretation. Now, the central message of this parable is that a person's actions ultimately prove whether he or she is obedient to God it is our actions that prove our obedience to God whether we're obedient to God or not it is not what we say it is what we do and that is what he is going to say to the religious leaders it's not the fact that you're religious leaders that show that you are obedient to God are you obeying God and you know we're reading through the book of Acts you know Acts the 4th chapter uh, we see opposition to Peter uh, after they healed a man We see the opposition beginning to mount against the disciples in the book of Acts because they're going out doing things in Christ's name and they're receiving opposition from the religious leaders. They're actually doing what Christ commissioned them to do from the first chapter of Acts, going to all the world, beginning at Judea, preaching the gospel. Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And who are they receiving an opposition from? The religious leaders. So our actions matter. You know the saying, actions speak louder than words. Okay? The big idea? Simple. It is not enough to hear the truth, we must live by that truth. Where' the same people say, talk is cheap. It is. There was a man that once said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. That, that that's, man, that is a true saying. The road to hell is paved with people who say, I will do this, I have a desire to do this but they don't do it. Good intentions don't cut it. A lot of people have good intentions, right? They have good intentions on being a good husband or being a good wife or being a good, good good child or good mother, good father, being a good employee or being a good employer or whatever task it may be. We have the best intentions in the world. Excuse me. Intentions don't pay the bills. (laughs) <laughs> okay intentions don't make up for showing lack or having a lack of love in a relationship good intentions don't do and in the spiritual sense the road to hell is paved with good intentions you have a lot of people out there that you may uh, evangelize or minister to or invite they say yeah yeah I know, uh, you, know I'll, you know, I got time. I'll come when I'm ready. I don't have the right clothes on. You can't make that excuse anymore. Uh, you know, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, but you can't make that excuse anymore. Oh, I don't have any church clothes. It's like you really care about that, right? But anyway, a lot of people now, they have good intentions. They say, yeah, I'll, okay, I got you, I hear you. You know, okay. They have good intentions. But they never act on what they intend to do. That is what we see in this parable. That one brother had intentions and didn't do it. And the other one did it. But then he turned around and did it. People can't get by by just having good intentions. And we can't let them off the hook for that. It's more to having good intentions than just having good intentions. You have to act on those intentions. Because again, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's like a a golfer said one time you know, uh, a golf match has four rounds. Okay, and uh, this golfer said one time, I used to watch golf a lot, he said, there are a lot of first-round leaders who don't make the cut. And the way that works is in golf, you know, you have to have a certain score to make it from the second round to the third round, you know, the weekend, because golf tournaments start on Thursday, Friday, this Saturday and fourth round on Sunday, the cut is made after the second round. If you get to a certain score, then you made the cut. And if you are above that score, then you don't, okay? He's saying a lot of people, especially younger golfers, new golfers, hey, they may be first-round leader, but they still don't make the cut. It looks like they're going to make it when they first start out because they got good intentions. But then they ultimately don't make the cut the same way it is in life, in spiritual life. And that's what we're going to see in this parable. So let's look at two principles here. We have two main ones. We're going to look at true believers and false believers, and then the interpretation. So the principle one is that true believers are those who believe the gospel, repent of their sins, and follow Christ. So we see here in this parable, the first son was asked to go work in his father's vineyard. Jesus said, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. Now, at first he refused. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it. In the Greek, he finally repented. And he went. So it says after he regretted it and went, he answered and said, "I will not." The first son represents the tax collectors and the harlots. That's the parallel is found in verse thirty-two, where John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe, but tax collectors and harlots. So the first son represents the tax collectors and the harlots. Those who feel unworthy to be called by God may not respond to his initial calling. And this is something we have to remember when we share the gospel with people. Those who feel unworthy to be called by God may not respond to his initial calling because they're looking at themselves and saying, why, why would God you know, want to save me? Look at where I am. Look at where I live. Look at what I've done with my life. Why, why would God want to save me? I'm not, I'm not worthy. You're right, you're not worthy. But that doesn't mean that you're unworthy of salvation. These people who feel unworthy may initially rebel against God's law, and they may have lived a wretched life. The tax collectors and the harlots, the harlots were um, three main categories. They were prostitutes, whores, and promiscuous women. We don't use that word whore a lot in our our culture, but uh, that's basically what a harlot is. A a loose woman. I think it's the Proverbs 7 woman. Now, they were in the same category in Jesus' day. Just think about this. Tax collectors and harlots were in the same category in Christ's day. They were on the same plane. They were seemingly... As far away from God as anyone could be. In fact the very gospel that we're reading. The very man who wrote the gospel. Matthew was a what? He was a tax collector. They had nothing to do with religion. Surely people thought. Surely these religious leaders thought. These people are not fit for salvation. John MacArthur in his uh, commentary on. On. Uh, tax collector says this and this is very fascinating he says at the opposite end of the social scale he was talking about the opposite end from the Pharisee he said at the opposite end of the social scale were the tax collectors they were the most universally despised in all Israel they were basically turncoats and criminals they were morally and ethically bankrupt patsies of Rome and enemies of everything holy. In fact, the tax collectors belong to the same social category as harlots, as I just said, and drunkards. And most tax collectors surround themselves with such people. What did they say? Uh, Birds of a feather flock together? They had a reputation for being not only dishonest and cruel, but also morally debased in every conceivable way. Tax collectors purchased franchises from the Roman occupiers, The agreement required them to pay a fixed amount to the Romans every year. Anything they collected over that was theirs to keep. They accumulated their wealth by taking unfair advantage of their own people. Wretched traitors to their religion and their nation. They were excluded from all religious activity and normal social relationships. So they were basically treated as social outcasts. I didn't know that. They were not allowed to participate in any the religious activity of the Jews; they were not allowed to go to the temple worship. Man, that's 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 pretty low. Normal social relationships; they they not they were persona non grata at parties. In other words, their presence was not welcome. They were, in the eyes of their countrymen, the furthest creatures from God, the lowest of the low, utterly without social standing. No matter how much wealth they might accumulate through thievery and extortion. Wow. Those were tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low in Jewish society. They were on the same plane as harlots, prostitutes, drunkards. That's where the tax collectors were. In man's eyes, They would be unworthy of salvation. In our eyes, they would be. We scoff at people like that. We do at times. So the first son said, I will not. But then afterwards, he regretted and went. After the initial rebellion, he repents or he uh, finally repented. Perhaps Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, calls them to work in his father's vineyard. The vile sinners recant of their rebellion and they repent of their sins. I want you to note the saving grace of our Lord. Even the worst of society, God can call to repent and follow him. That's why I always say, look, we, we pray for unbelievers. We don't know what God is doing in their hearts. That's I said, pray for our visitors, they're unbelievers. I, I, I pray, Lord, save them. That's the first thing. Of course, I want them to come and be in fellowship with us, but I want them to be saved at the same time. We have, un, we have unsaved loved ones, We have unsaved families. We have unsaved coworkers, we have unsaved friends. We, we have unsaved people who think that they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're false converts. Pray for their salvation. Pray that the Lord calls them to repentance. Two of the Lord's own, Matthew and Zacchaeus, were tax collectors. Yet Jesus said to them, follow me. What a great encouragement for the saints. God calls sinners to do what. No matter what their social standing is in our day, God still calls them what? To follow him. And you know what? That's the message that we have for them. Look, yes, your life may look this way. Yes, you have messed up your life. Yes, you are suffering from the consequences of your sinful choices. But turn to Christ and be saved. It will not mean that your life is going to instantly get better and that you're going to start living your best life now. But it does mean that you will have an eternity secured, that you will have the promise of eternal life given to you, that all of your sins will be blotted out because you will be now justified. You will be declared righteous. You will become a saint of God. You will be set apart as one of his own. That is a great message for them because, They're looking for somewhere to belong. They're looking for somewhere to fit in. But Lord, they're finding it in all the wrong places. They are. They need to know, look, there's a body of believers that you can belong to. There's a church that you can belong to. There's a Savior who is mighty to bring you up out of that pit that you're in. Come to him. And be saved. Repent and turn to Christ. Yes they may shout out. And I don't want to hear that religious stuff. But well, guess what. Say it anyway. Because they need to hear it. They do. They need to hear it. Of course you do it in love. I know all y'all do. But they need to hear it. Repent. Turn to Christ. You're not too bad off. You haven't blown it with God. He is mighty to save. Some, like the first son, by their lives declare that they will not go. This is what Matthew Poole said. He said, Some, like the first son, by their lives declare that they will not go, but yet upon second thoughts, having their hearts touched by the finger of God, they do God's work. That is so true. Some may say no, I don't I don't want to hear that. I know. I'm I'm good. I'm fine. I don't need the Lord. You know, I don't I'm 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 good. You know, I um I I've been ministering to these businesses around our church since we've been here 10 years. I take the devotionals to Sheila and all. I know all them by name. All the ladies in uh Advanced cash loan down at Checkmate. And you know when I handed out these last devotionals for September, October, November, I put a copy of Solving the God, God Puzzle under the devotion. I gave them these two. I just said, Hey, here's your here's your devotional, and I had the devotional on top and it's on the bottom. And they always take them. I mean, they never they all, they actually like getting them. And as I you know when I gave them this too I said, Lord, I pray that, that they read this. And, and, and they you know that it, it cuts them to the heart and that they have more questions and you know be saved but I've been doing this for 10 years handing out devotionals and, and doing all that but I don't know what God is doing in their hearts I just pray that the Lord saves them as Matthew Poole said they may declare that they would not go they may declare that they don't, that they're not hearing it. But upon second thought, guess what? Their hearts may be touched by the finger of God, and he will save them. One of the ladies down there, uh a couple doors down, she she's she you know, she you know, has a she's living in sin and in, in uh fornication you know I have a living boyfriend or whatever and she's talking about them getting married and and asked me will I uh, marry them I said no I can't marry you unless you're uh, you know one part of our church but even if you're not part of our church I, I can't marry non Christians I'm not going to do that I'm just not going to do that um, but you know and then she asked about doing marriage counseling so I said yeah we can but there's, there's a lot of stipulations to that also And she understood you know and she said, well, I need to come to your church. Well, I said, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm here. You know, you know where we are, so, you know, and that's all I can do. Uh, but I do pray for them, and that's what we do. We never know what the Lord is doing in their hearts. And that's what we will always remember. They can be like this first son, amen? Now, so we got the second son here, principle two. False believers are those who seek the effectual work of grace in followers of Jesus, yet they refuse to repent. They seek the work of grace in the followers of believers, what they see in other believers. They they seek that same work. But guess what? They refuse to repent themselves. So the second son was asked to go, as it says here in this parable. He was asked to go. Likewise, and he answered and said, what I go, sir. But he did not go. So first. He answered, I go, sir. So the second son represents the Pharisees and the chief priests, the elders, the religious leaders of the Jews. They were the self righteous hypocrites that opposed Christ's ministry at every turn. When you read through the gospels, that's all you see is opposition coming from these religious leaders. So this parable was about them. That's who it was about. They had a form of godliness, as as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 and 5, having a form of godliness but denying its power. They had a form of godliness. They had the the vestments on, you know, all the the garb. They, You know, like our days, you have the the men with the clergy collar and the big robes on and, you know, all this holy-looking stuff. I mean, and now these so-called super apostles have so much stuff on, have a hat and all that stuff. I'm like, who do y'all think y'all are, the Pope? I mean, you know, you know, they have all this on. They They have the appearance of godliness. These religious leaders were pretenders. They were false. They were counterfeits. They were. Uh, false professors of faith they were professors of faith but they were not practitioners of faith it's one thing to profess Christ to to speak to claim Christ but they were not practitioners you go into your doctor's office and he says yeah I went to medical school and you know he's professing that he's a doctor but He didn't have the credentials. <laughs> he didn't have the practice. He hasn't been practicing it. I will leave out that office. Wouldn't you? I will hope so. So we see they have a form of godliness. They were pretenders. And Jesus has some very terse words for them. They taught it, but they did not live it. Look at Matthew 23 right quick. Let's, let's go there just for a second. Let's uh, look ahead. Let's project and see how Jesus characterized the Pharisees. This is a masterful takedown. This is like, as I say at work, coming off the top rope. You know, like they're doing wrestling. They come off top rope with the elbow down like that. This is a suplex right here. Listen, listen to what Jesus says about these hypocrites he says then jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples so he's telling the multitude and the disciples about the scribes and the pharisees basically warning the disciples and the multitudes about them this is what he says the scribes and pharisees sit in moses seat therefore whatever they tell you to observe that observe and do but do not do according to their what their works For they say and do not what? Do, just like the son. Think about that, just like the son in this parable. The son said what? I go, sir, but did not go. He's characterizing these very people that we're reading about now. Verse four, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They put all these religious burdens on these people. All these extra duties, all these extra things outside of the law, all these legalists, they put all these extra burdens on the people, but they don't even help the people with those burdens themselves. He continues. But all their works they do, they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, Greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. So they love the praises and the applause of people. They want all that attention, just like you got these false preachers now. They love all the attention and accolades of people. They want to be showered with all the praise. They want, you know, I never forget this when I was, you know, at the church that I was at. I had never saw my pastor in the wild. You know, it's like when you were growing up as a kid, you saw your teacher at the grocery store. You're like, I didn't know you went grocery shopping. Like you're an actual person. You actually, you know, you, you rather saw your teachers like outside of work. It was like, you wanted to hide from them almost. Like, I don't want my teacher to see me, you know? Like they actually shop. You know, some of these pastors, you know, people treat them like they got an aura around them or something, you know, like, like, like they walk around with a halo or just some type of aura about them. But when you see them in public, you're like, Ugh, please they're just like me you know you see them grocery shopping or in Walmart or Sam's or uh, you know whatever the case may be you see them in public they're just regular people like you but people treat them like they're some like gods and that's the way the Pharisees desired to be treated they desired to be treated like gods they wanted all the praise of people but what did Jesus say about them Verse (laughs) 8, but you, multitudes and disciples, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you all are brethren. In other words, no one is higher or bigger than the other. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. He's not saying don't call your father father, that's not what that means. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Of course, he's talking about those Pharisees. And then he talks to them directly Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! He says that more than once, by the way. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Ouch. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that means one convert and when he is won you make him twice as much a son of hell as yours whoa man that would send me out right there woo but that's the way they were woe to you blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple it is nothing but whoever swears by the goal of the temple he is obliged to perform it Fools and blind, for which is greater, the goal or the temple that sanctifies the goal. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar, swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple, swears by it and all and by him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Then he goes again. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're majoring on the minors. You're forgetting the big things, the big idea of things. I'm not going to read all these. I like the whitewashed tombs in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly. Yes, I will do. As the first, I mean, second psalm said but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness <laughs> even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness they'll make me just go but what's the point of that Jesus was describing these same religious leaders in this parable that they're like that first sign. They have all that outward appearances of godly religious people. But they do not do. They taught it, but they did not live it. Because what does the parable say? He says, I go, sir. But then he says what? He did not go. So after initially committing to kingdom work, he backs out. That's what we see. He pretends to have a willingness to go. But in reality, he does not. His mouth speaks commitment but his heart is not committed how many people we find like that in the Lord's church they speak commitment but they're not committed they say all the right things to the Lord they make commitments to the Lord They, they have a willingness but in reality they don't have it again they have all the best intentions despite his agreement he stayed away from the vineyard that's what the second son did his words were good but his actions did not match his words his words spoke louder than his actions it's like a pastor and pastors sometimes we don't have the struggle in our church fortunately we did at one time you know a pastor asking the church member to commit to something and they agree and don't follow through Okay, Pastor, I'll do this. It's uh, what they call the 80-20 principle. 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. It's like that in a lot of churches, especially larger churches. I mean, because people can what? They can hide. They can leave before the benediction. get to their car before church is dismissed and they go they're they're not committed to their church think about this just for a second even at you know considered small churches even at smaller churches not ours but like you know two three hundred people if every person in that church was committed to that church how much more thriving those churches would be I talk to pastors all the time. I talk to people that serve at the church all the time. It's always like we can't get anybody to do anything. And a lot of churches have that. We had that problem at one time. We did uh, about, what, six, seven years ago maybe. When we were larger, we had had that problem with, uh, you know, I had about 35, 40 people. We had problems with people doing the same thing. So we had to, you know, have a, a, a... business meaning about it and and right that ship because you had the same people doing the same same thing you know so we came up with the plan and, and and it worked because hey everybody in the church is here to serve each other and to serve the body of christ but some people say that they're going to be committed but then they back out and that's what we see in this passage This son, he agreed, but he didn't do it. And that was represented by these uh, scribes and Pharisees. And because of their attitude, they were causing harm to their own converts. Because the converts would follow them and do what? Take on their same example. Just like Jesus said, they will be twice the son of hell because they'll be twice the hypocrite that the Pharisees are. Because of this same attitude. So now we get to the interpretation. This is what Jesus asked. Which of the two did the will of his father? Even Jesus' enemies replied the first. And with that, Jesus interpreted the parable. Now, the tax collectors and harlots who were deemed unworthy in Jewish society are looked on with particular scorn from the Pharisees. They will enter the kingdom of God before the religious leaders. Think about that. That's, that is the irony of ironies. When I mean, you're looking at it from a, a cultural point of view. Christ will receive all who come to him in, uh, in repentance. We must remember this. Even the vilest and most despised of sinners. Their past doesn't matter because God makes all things new 2nd Second, Second Corinthians 5 and 7 any man who is in Christ is a what new creation old things are passed away behold all things have become new it doesn't matter about the person's past now if they've done things in their past they have to bear the consequences for that But their past is not a hindrance to God saving them. Okay? That's the great message of the gospel that, I say this all the time, many people that you see who are unsaved, they're walking around because they don't think that their sins can be forgiven. They think that their Life is beyond repair because of the choices that they've made. That is the greatest need that man has and that is for his sins to be forgiven. Sin is man's greatest malady. Sin is man's greatest sickness. These people are walking around self-medicating, self-loathing, self-harm willing to have their bodies mutilated guess what they're suffering from the malady of sin and they haven't sought to reconcile their sinful state with a holy God because they don't think that it's possible But the message of the gospel, friends, is that it is possible that God is mighty to save. In this parable, we see that the tax collectors and the harlots were deemed unworthy. But in Christ's eyes, guess what? They were the most excellent. Leon Morris said this. He says it means that sinners like official Judaism's outcasts could respond to the message of the kingdom much more readily than sinners whose sins were cast into the conventional mold that brought no rebuke from the religious establishment. In other words, he's saying the outcast could respond to the gospel message more readily than those who or in a religious establishment who don't think that their sins need to be forgiven. We must be careful not to assume that the outcast in our society cannot be saved by the message of the kingdom. We can't assume that. If so we end up like the targets of this parable. We end up like the Pharisees. We end up left out because that was their problem. They didn't believe. That the tax collectors and the harlots and the drunkards were worthy of salvation. That's why they didn't minister to them. They, they, they judged them. They criticized them. They pushed them out of Jewish society. They pushed them aside. They didn't let them come in the temple and worship. They were not worthy of worship. Someone like Paul who persecuted the church was called out of the world by the Lord. He was not left out, although he was a persecutor of the church. Think about Rahab, the prostitute. She's counted in the hall, uh, the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11 chapter. She hid the spies in her place when they came to spy out uh, Jericho. She protected those spies. She, she, she hid them when they, when they came. And she was a harlot. Okay. She was a harlot. But she was counted among the faithful. We must not underestimate that. On the other hand, the religious leaders did not believe the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's message was repent and believe. And these religious people did not. They did not. They did not repent, though the door was opened by John and Jesus for them to come in. The great Bishop J.C. Ryle said this. He says, it matters not how high and self-confident a man's profession of religion may be. Does he really give up his sins? If not, his profession is abominable in God's sight, and he himself is still under the curse. That's what J.C. Ryle said. The question is... Does he really give up his sins? Does the leader give up his sins? Does the false professor give up their sins? If not, guess what? They're still under judgment if they're not willing to give up their sins. Clyde Snogers said, the leaders did not believe, John. They did not believe at first. And even when they saw sinners believing, they still didn't change their minds and believe him. Think about that. Even when they saw the Pharisees and, and the scribes they were always following Jesus around basically harassing him when he was saving sinners when he was saving prostitutes when he was healing the lame the, the, the dregs of society of Jewish society they saw him do all that and they still didn't believe and these were the religious leaders so ironic so what's the fundamental difference? One son believed. And the other son hearing the same call did not believe because. The man in the vineyard asked the same thing. It says here. He came verse 30 he came to the second son and said likewise. So he didn't have a different call for the second son as he did for the first. No, he said the same thing. I need you to go into the vineyard and work. Same call. Same call. Though the religious leaders saw the example of repentance in the tax collectors and harlots, they still did not repent themselves. And this was damning. And this was self-condemnation on part of the religious leaders. <laughs> friends, everybody receives the same call. <laughs> you have in families or among friend groups, someone in that group gets saved. Now other friends can see how God changed their life. They can look at that and say, good for them. That happens. Well, a family member knows how you were. You were a terror. God saved you. Changed your life around. You become a new creation in Christ. They basically look at you and say, good for you. I'm I'm, I'm proud of you. Good for you. I'm proud of what the Lord has done in your life. But what they're saying is, that's not for me. That 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 religious thing, that... That church thing—that's—that's that's not for me. That's for y'all crazy people. <laughs> you know that—that's that, what they say. Your unsaved family members can look at you and say, oh, that, "That's good for them." You know, yeah, they get up on Sunday, go to church every. I got other things to do. You know, good for them. I'm, I'm glad to see that they—they've turned their life around and so forth and so on. You know, okay, good for them. Good for you, Melissa. Okay, I'm, I'm glad to see that, that you're doing that. That's what they'll say. They'll say it as if it's not for them. And that was the attitude of these Pharisees. And that is a damning attitude. That is a condemnable attitude to have. That, okay, you see these people that you all say are not even worthy of being saved. You see them being saved. And you look at it and say, okay. All right, this still don't mean anything. This is self-condemnation if there ever was. (laughs) So in conclusion, the charge is to let us repent and believe in Christ. That is the only hope for sinners. The only hope. Let us not be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders. We can't be hypocrites. We can't profess faith but not live according to that faith. We can't have talk and all external appearance because it's cheap. What counts is actually doing the will of the Father from the heart. That is what counts the most. That is what we must always be aware of. Amen. Applications here as we close number one don't despise those who we think are not worthy of God's kingdom because we too are not worthy I'm not worthy of being in God's kingdom there's nothing in me that is worth being part of God's kingdom it is only by his grace by grace we are saved through faith not of works it's not of our own talk is cheap let us live out our faith We're not going to live it out perfectly, but let us live it out nonetheless. The world is watching. The world is watching. And number two, there's number three. There's only one response to the gospel message. Either you believe it or you reject it. Believing it means you turn away from sin and repentance, which leads to salvation. Rejected means you refuse to come to Christ in salvation, which leads to a judicial hardening by God. As Spurgeon said, and I quote this a lot, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. When a person rejects the gospel, their heart hardens. And the more they reject the gospel, the more their heart hardens. Because God is is judging them for rejecting the gospel. Each time they reject it, it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. So we always pray that they come to Christ while their heart is tender. Like a meat tenderized, you're tenderizing it so that seasoning can get in there, you know. We want the seasoning, the salt of the word, to, you know, the Holy Spirit applies that gospel to their hearts, applies that message to their hearts saves them that's what we, we pray for that God softens the hearts of those who hear the gospel of those who we share our, uh, the sermons with Lord I pray that you know when I, when I hand the devotions out and I said Lord soften their hearts soften their hearts because a person can love you and smile at you like they do they love seeing me when I come, in, come and speak to them about you know, a couple times a week chat up with them and everything But they're still lost. And I pray, Lord, soften their hearts. Soften their hearts. So that they can receive that message. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. It convicts us. It encourages us. I pray, Father, that you use this message to encourage us as believers. As we go out and evangelize. That we do it with boldness. That we do it on with the greatest message ever. And Lord, that is that Jesus saves. That no matter where a person is in their life, no matter what condition they are, no matter what their lot is in life, that they are not beyond your grace. Lord, as we minister to hurting people who are unsaved, Lord, may we point them to the gospel of the glory of God. Point them to the message that they can be saved, that Jesus saves, that you can't make so much of a mess of your life that Jesus can't save you, that you're not unworthy. Your life is not unworthy. Yes, you're a sinner. Come to Christ, repent, and be saved. Have your sins forgiven. Until you do that. Your sins will not be forgiven. The weight of your sin will continue to be heavy on you. Until the day that you call upon the Lord and be saved. Lord, we pray for our visitors as they come every Sunday that you work in their hearts, that you save them. That you save them. And all of our friends and loved ones and family members, coworkers, Lord, that you save them also. Father, thank you for this great word. Thank you for the glorious word. Thank you for the glorious message of the gospel. May we as believers not forget it. Always remind ourselves of it. And Lord, may you use that same gospel to save to the utmost. In Christ's name I pray, amen.